Welcome to the Nightbird Radio Podcast. I'm Timothy Saylor, and I'm going to be your host this evening as we sound out the subconscious, navigate the nocturnal, and explore the farthest reaches of our experience. Coming at you from the back of an 86 Dodge Ram van on the rolling foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in the Great Forest, deep in the heart of the Kali Yuga. This is Radio for the Hauntological Turn. This episode of the Nightbird Podcast was brought to you by yours truly. If you'd like to become a sponsor and hear your name right at the top of the show, head to nightbirdpodcast.com and navigate to the support the show page. Thank you so much for your generous support. And welcome back, Nightbirds. It's great to have you back, and it's great to be back. This week I was joined by Steven Snyder, who goes by the handle Recluse. He's the co-author of the book Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History, as well as the author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. He's the writer and curator over at the VisUp blog, which can be found at visupview.blogspot.com, and he's also the host of the Farm Podcast. This episode was like going to conspiracy college. We talked about the mounds of North America, dowsing for spirit contact, ley lines and the energy of place, haunted highways and weird routes, military behavioral control programs, Operation Paperclip, mind control in the American school system, Project Coast, David Lynch, Theurgy, and so much more. He also shared with me about some of his upcoming projects that I'm really looking forward to. So without further introduction, let's get to the conversation. Steven Snyder, welcome to the Nightbird Radio Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing well, sir, and thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Do you want to just give a quick history of you know your work in this area? Um just for for the audience or people that might not be familiar with you sure um well i got into this um back around 2010 or something like that formally when i launched uh the visa blog and initially it was in um conjunction with a paranormal um you know kind of thing that i was doing with um one of my first partners out of um the daytona beach area in florida so the uh visa actually stands for um evolution investigative society of unexplained phenomena a little bit of uh trivia there for everyone nice uh, so anyway you know it was it, this was back in the air of course like when ghost hunters and that kind of thing was all the rage but um uh, i had never wanted to just kind of do a straight ghost hunting thing i was always sort of more interested in a lot of um 40 and you know phenomena and that kind of thing uh more so than just kind of conventional you know let's go out and try to see if we can contact the dead person who uh crashed their car here or there or something like that and frequently you know this led to a lot of really interesting results too um i definitely found it was useful to uh ask really precise questions like to some of these uh whatever it was you know you were supposedly talking to because you would find out real quick that uh a lot of things they claimed to be the spirits of the dead were not because they couldn't answer just basic questions about that person's life interesting 
So, That's cool to hear, man. I yeah, I had no idea that that was where that came from. Uh, please continue. I love this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we did that. Um, you know, originally we had done just sort of like the paranormal thing, and then I had also been doing a lot of this <clears throat> um, research uh, on my own into various topics. You know, a lot of it was kind of more related around, um, you know, some like the. Uh, you know behavior modification stuff the remote viewing stuff things like that and i had wanted to do some essays on a few of these things like a couple of connections i was putting together and also i mean um the place uh you know kind of what we would think it was like a sacred geometry or something like that even back then that was kind of uh something i was fascinated by um and even with the mounds uh you know i've been around them a good chunk of my life first you know i was in west virginia until i was about so i don't know eight years old or something like that when i was in third grade and then i was in um florida in the daytona beach area um until relatively recently like i was in my mid-30s um but i lived in the you know the area where the uh the Tamakwe, i think is um probably betraying the pronunciation on that but uh, they were the um one of the main tribes there around the time of colonial contact and they were also a mountain building civilization but um the mounds that they built were out of seashells actually um quite impressive and there was a really massive one in uh, new smyrna beach which is a little south of daytona called uh it's turtle mound or something like that um so I kind of grown up in the backdrop of that. And then also um, some of the weird stuff in US 1, which sort of went through some of the Otemoakwe territories with the parks and what have you up there. Um, uh, gosh, man, you know, you would sometimes go like wandering back there, um, you know, off of the trails and whatnot. And you would find some of the altars that um, they had left behind. And again, they were all like made out of seashells and stuff like that. I mean, stuff oh, was wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what that also makes me think of is like the um the Coral Castle. Mm -hmm. And it's like, did that guy have some kind of line on on some uh, this is just total speculation on my part. If anyone doesn't know about this, this is this guy that alone built these like monolithic this monolithic castle out of the same kind of stone you're talking about, like seashell coral, um that's like the bedrock of Florida. But yeah. And he built this thing and, and no one really ever saw him. Like I think a couple kids once saw him just working alone, but he had like a, a block and tackle. And when they asked him, like, how did you do this? There's like ton, like ton, mul multiple ton blocks. He's like, uh, he understood the secret of the pyramids or something like that. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's like a tangent, but that's interesting that, that, uh, that's just what kind of what that made me think of. It's like, did that guy, uh, stumble on something, but anyway, continue. Yeah, no, I mean, it is an interesting uh, subject. Unfortunately, I was never able to see the Coral Gables uh, before I left Florida. Of course, it's it's like uh, pretty far south, almost down, I think, around like the Key West area, sort of like on the tip of the mainland, if I remember correctly. And um, it, it's not very fun to drive through the Miami area, to put it <laughs> yeah. mildly. So that was always um, a bit of a deterrent, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, but yeah, if I ever do go back to Florida, that would definitely be one of the uh, the things I would really very much like to see at some point. Um, interestingly, you know, you kind of find if you travel around the country enough, you know, there's, there's different kind of structures like that across the nation. Um, one is in Salt Lake City, uh, Gilgal Gardens, uh, I believe is the name off the top of my head. And it's 
kind of a similar setup it's it's located actually like right in the middle of this um you know little suburb and right off of like downtown salt lake city so i mean it's not like even in the middle of nowhere or anything like that and the story is that this guy basically built this whole you know just sort of park um behind his house and this land you know that's you know right behind like all these multiple little suburbs and what have you and he had this secret tunnel down into it from his root cellar that would bring him out into the area where the park was and he built all of these huge you know ritualistic structures down there uh which has some really creepy stuff on it i should add and um nice i'm gonna have to check that out yeah 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 and he did it all and he apparently started it too like when he was in his mid-50s i mean uh, and then continue to build it over the course of the next 30 years so you're basically left with this notion that this this man like in his 70s early 80s was still crafting these elaborate stone and marble structures um behind his suburban house with a lot of his neighbors being none the wiser um so yeah there's there, you find a lot of that kind of stuff it's one of the things that makes america just you know and a lot of these kind of off the beaten path type attractions like that's so fascinating um but anyway yeah getting back to like my story so you know i'd had all this sort of other stuff i was researching and i had started putting uh the essays up on the blog that i had started advise up originally to kind of promote the paranormal investigations that we were doing um but gradually i mean it became much more about just doing the articles i kind of built up a following with that and um uh you know from fairly early on i had really been uh inspired by a lot of the synchro mystical movement of course i mean i would say chris knowles was probably by far the biggest influence uh, along with um was it rigorous uh intuition i think or i always forget the second part of the website that jeff on the blog that jeff wells um ran for many years that was just fantastic um uh but yeah and also the forum is still quite interesting as well with a lot of great discussion on it but those were sort of like the uh major influences i had going in when i started Vise up and i had always wanted it to kind of be this cross between you know a lot of these um kind of parapolitical topics on the one hand and then this what i guess more exopolitics or just high strangeness all that other kind of stuff like on the side and um you know just sort of gradually i think i kind of found my own sort of niche um you know my own voices i sort of i like, grew out of the synchromystical movement even though that's kind of still where i trace my origins back to and i still feel like a lot of kinship with it i mean i kind of uh just do my own thing i guess now very cool so yeah so what um i had this question just while you were talking what what methods were you using to talk to these you mentioned like asking these spirits about um well or the you know presumably dead people that you found may, may not actually be who they claim to be what what kind of methods were you using uh, to do that ironically typically dowsing rods yeah I found, I mean, there's, you know, that's one of those things like you always would think of dowsing rods as being rather ridiculous, but I've found them to be actually quite effective, uh, uh, at least, you know, back in the day, I mean, for this kind of stuff. I mean, this is before, of course, you know, you could easily get stuff like the spirit box and things like that. So, yeah, um, see, those things are even like more trickstery to me, I feel like. 
Mm-hmm. Like there's something going on. Like um, just being in the pre- I, I was in the presence of someone that was doing the Estes method once, and it just like was really it was super eerie. It was in the middle of the woods too. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a lot that adds up in those situations that could like have affected. But like my intuition with it was like, this is like some. This is something else. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah like we're yeah. not necessarily talking to like a, yeah, to a person. Well, like a person. You know, maybe a non-human person, right? But like dowsing rods. That's yeah. I that actually makes sense to me. Um, I think that's a pretty like, in my opinion, like I know some people might find that kind of woo, but I feel like that's a pretty tried and true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, method. I mean, the, the core of dowsing rods. I mean, it really is related to the metals. Of course, we had made our own dowsing rods out of uh, copper that we had found, you know, in like uh, you know a lot of old coat hangers and stuff. We've gone out and like looked for. Um, but you know, it's really important that you have like specific kinds of metals for it, because I mean, you know, again, I think when it comes to a lot of these kinds of communications, it's a, it's really based on like different kinds of energies that we don't totally understand. But I mean, certain metals uh, can be used, you know, as a method of communication through this. And I mean, I do think there's something to be said for like, you know, high frequency radio or low frequency radio waves, things like that of that nature as well. So. Uh, when you do sort of take this kind of electrical perspective of it, quote unquote, but definitely, I mean, I think copper um, is a major issue with the there's a you know good conduit for this type of stuff, uh, particularly the general notion that um, consciousness is sort of derived from like an energy field that surrounds uh, the physical body, if you will. So. <clears throat> And I mean, I kind of think, too, that that kind of contributes, uh, or at least it's a factor as to why, like, places are such a, mm. you know, I mean, a big uh, factor as well in the amount of, like, maybe paranormal activities or things of that nature. Because, I mean, again, when you look at things like ley lines and those kinds of concepts, I mean, I suspect that, um, you know, this tradition grew out of uh, telluric currents things of that nature of course this is you know the method that we used uh for telegrams you know telegraph system back in the day uh so i mean it was already known as i mean an effective means of communication with that and natural means through the uh energies that flow through the earth these telluric currents uh but i suspect that that was probably the basis you know for ley lines on what the ancients were looking at back in the day so you know, to my mind, it stands to reason that um, certain areas that these currents travel along, especially when there's intersections, crossroads, that kind of thing, would probably be, you know, most constructive to, um, you know, these different kinds of conscious energies and things of that nature gathering there. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, uh, the building of places was so important uh, to so many ancient civilizations in general. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because um, it makes me think of, so around here we have, um, and it's just like, you know, maybe like an hour and a half south of me, um, Rock Eagle and Rock Hawk. And those are in Putnam County, Georgia. And they are these, they're um, bird effigies that are on the, they're on kind of a raised mound and they are made of like 
hundreds and hundreds of pieces of quartzite rock. Oh. And, you know, like the ground here is just full of that. It's like very high quartz content. And then, you know, Atlanta is on just like a big ass piece of granite. But like. Yeah, quartz seems to be something that turns up like in a lot of these areas too. I mean, I also yeah. think that the kind of mineral and like metal deposits are like another factor. So it's like I was saying, you know, earlier, I mean, it seems like certain substances are also better conduits for these kinds of energies. Right. And they kind of, yeah, these power places seem to um, constantly be located on or near them. But I mean, if you go to these places, they're like, they're buzzing they're like alive right and then you know there are some there are some mound sites that are like you can tell it's more of you know this was maybe a village or or something like that like uh and i'm just going from my own experience of like just kind of feeling it out um and of course you know the the excavations will bear it out too but um the etowah mounds a little bit north of here that seems more like, you know, like, okay, yeah, like people lived here. But these sites are, these, like, I think, and I think Rock Eagle and Rock Hawk, they're older than most of the other mound complexes. So they're like from even before, and I can't give you a precise like year range, but, and then, you know, I'm also kind of one of those people that thinks that like all the timing is probably pretty off. Like I'd definitely take a more Graham Hancock. Um, timetable on that stuff mm -hmm. <clears throat> but yeah they're like and and what's interesting to me about that is and i don't know man maybe it's just from um reading the peter lavenda stuff but it's interesting because like one of the oldest insane asylums or like one of the large it was when it was open it was one of the largest insane asylums and i think maybe the largest in the world is uh, central state and it's like right there, and then so Rock Eagle and Rock near a mound uh, complex. You're saying, yeah. Well, it's near the Rock Eagle complex. Yeah, it's it's not yeah. like right on it, you know. Um, and then the Rock Hawk, which is kind of um on the other side of this river from Rock Eagle, it is owned by Georgia Power, and it just really. Uh, you know, it, it seems like, like you said, like those currents, those ley lines, like they're, is that a coincidence that those things are always built on, on those, in those areas? What do you think about that? Like, what is your, your, no, cause I mean, I've noticed a lot of that. I mean, obviously, you know, with, um, one of the, in West Virginia, one of the largest, uh, surviving mound complexes in the state is, uh, in Moundsville, West Virginia. It's in the Dina mound there, Grave Creek mound. It's enormous. It's like nearly 60 feet high, I believe. Uh, and in this case, <clears throat> like literally directly across the street, um, there was this enormous Gothic prison. I mean, it really looks like a, a castle or something like that, honestly. I mean, it, it's closed down now, but for many years, it was um, the major, uh, I believe, state penitentiary in West Virginia. And more importantly, it was where most of the state's executions were performed for many, many years. Um, and this prison has subsequently become, you know, kind of infamous in its own right. Of course, it's supposedly one of the most haunted places in Appalachia on the one hand. 
so it's appeared in a lot of like ghost hunting shows but then sort of curiously more recently it was used in i think it was the tv show castle rock as a stand-in for um shawshank uh prison which you know everybody knows from shawshank redemption the uh, famous movie there so it's kind of fascinating how it's entered the popular consciousness that way as well but i mean yeah it's it's right across the street literally from grave creek mound and i've noticed this again in ohio in uh chillicothe um you know not too far outside of there there's a, a huge hopewell complex called mound city and in this case there's not one but there's two prisons one that's like directly beside of the mound complex uh it's a huge prison complex and then directly across the street from it there's another huge prison complex wow. uh, and i believe at least one of the because if i'm not mistaken the the mounds and the mountain city complex aren't the original ones they were basically reconstructions of the original structures they had yeah i think that taken. happens a lot too yeah if i'm not mistaken i think they had torn them down to build um the one prison that's directly beside of the site so that prison is actually made out of the remnants of the original structure there. So it's oh. very odd. <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's just asking for it, man. <laughs> yeah. And that's why it's like, ah, man, I just can't see coincidence there. Like, I see that kind of hand of something. Yeah. Even if it's like a, a current, you know? And then I, I'm about to do a show with uh, one of my uh, mates in uh, the Michigan area, which we're going to get into uh, some of the mounds out there. And I mean, what he was telling me, it's kind of a similar thing where they built like a lot of landfills and stuff like that near these sites. So, yeah, it does seem like that's a reoccurring theme throughout the nation is that a lot of these, um, you know, ancient megalithic structures, you usually see a lot of odd things like place near them and i think in a lot of cases stuff that's meant to sort of desecrate or you know i mean i don't know even mock in a sense the energy from these native american sites I and mean, this is why you know you're putting like prisons and you know landfills and stuff like that next to them i mean it's just you know i mean absolutely sacrilege of the highest order in a lot of ways yeah absolutely it's 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 <clears throat> profane yeah so speaking of the prison thing they're so in this same um area as the and i think these were um these mounds in particular are the woodland peoples i think is what they call them i'm not sure if they've changed that oh that the eastern is it the eastern you're talking in uh georgia there yeah no, that's interesting the eastern woodland tribes. yeah i think that was kind of like the original sort of um culture for at least a lot of the native american tribes going back to around like uh you know the uh or the late bcs if i'm not mistaken yeah and so um really really fascinating but oh yeah what i was saying is um there are like at one point i think they've closed some of them but at one point there were a total of seven prisons and this whole area it's like i lived there for like 12 years it's it's like a vortex yeah it just well, has got, that thing going on i mean also too the atlanta prison is just absolutely infamous i mean i i can remember back from my uh, profane youth man i would hear some stories about uh, the atlantic prison atlanta prison from um people i was uh, uh let's just say detained with and yeah i mean it was people tell me like that you would literally there were accounts of people literally committing suicide rather than going into the atlanta prison it was so bad yeah i could imagine that place is just it's so uh 
it's imposing looking. I mean, they always are, right? You know, they're built like these mm-hmm. kind of like always looks like a dark fortress, which is like what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, like, in the case I know of uh, the Moundsville prison that's right in West Virginia next to Grave Creek Mound, I mean, they even said specifically that it was built with the intention of being like the most sinister, imposing, like kind of a... Uh, architecture that they could think of that's why they did it in this really elaborate gothic revival style because you know, yeah they really wanted people terrified of it you well, know just looking at it that's an interesting point too okay because so part of it to me seems like it's it is almost like this um the ritual of power itself like the ritual involved in creating this um creating this this idea of a monolithic power you know like that's kind of plays into that because you you know really like they don't have any there's no power but what the people well or so they say right there's no power but what the people are willing to like give to them and i'm just speaking as them as like you know powers that be or whatever we can be talking about you know the government whatever um but i think it's it it's kind of in general across the board, right? That you have to convince the people in some way, shape, or form that you are legitimate, that you are the the force to be reckoned with, right? And that's kind of part of that trappings of power, I feel like. Maybe that's part of it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you got to have legitimacy to rule. I mean, that's one of the major things. Yeah, it's it's sort of, it really is, it's like a Wizard of Oz thing. It's kind of creating that illusion. Because in the end, it is kind of an illusion, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, again, that's uh, why, I mean, ritual drama is such like a big part of all this as well. Right, right. <clears throat> um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, another kind of interesting thing I've uh, been looking at recently in regards to, like, a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of places of power, too, or the highway systems, especially, like, the early uh, U.S., you know, routes before the interstate system, the, uh, you know, kind of transnational highways. Um, you know, you've got real, a really interesting one out there in Atlanta that goes through at U.S. Route 23, which uh, starts in Jacksonville and runs all the way up to uh, Michigan. Uh, but I've been looking at that one a lot lately because, I mean, it's got so much crazy stuff on uh, it and unfolding, of course, uh, along it as well. Um, but, I mean, obviously, besides the uh, kind of connections that it has to Atlanta there and then also Jacksonville, which, uh, I mean, it has a storied history. It's also a major military hub. Uh, in fact, I think it has like one of the largest military presence in the entire eastern seaboard. And then, um, you know, getting outside of Georgia, it goes into North Carolina. And one of the really interesting places it goes by is Asheville, North Carolina, which is where mm. the Baltimore Mansion is located. And this was built by the Vanderbilts. Um, and there's also another um, really interesting structure there, too. I think it's like the Asheville Tower or something like that. It was another really elaborate mansion that was put in by another wealthy family and it's just it's fascinating because again Asheville, north carolina it's in the middle of nowhere and they really build these intricate um structures there and of course there's been a lot of rumors for years of some kind of like satanic cult that's active um in that whole region that kind of thing um i went to the biltmore when i was really young uh, so i don't remember much of it but i mean certainly going back and looking at some of the 
you know, imagery I've been able to find of it. I mean, it's definitely an imposing structure with a lot of, um, you know, esoteric markings and what have you all around it. Uh, I know there was also a lot of rumors that there were like underground tunnels and stuff in that whole area too. So it's just fascinating that, I mean, they built almost this, I mean, uh, you know, almost modern kind of quasi uh, shrine out there in the middle of nowhere. Um, and then, of course, you continue further north. Uh, it goes into um, Ashland, Kentucky, uh, which, again, you know, is another interesting area. It's sort of like... Right yeah, definitely the, like a hub, right? Yeah, it's another area with a lot weird of mountains stuff. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of serial killers came from, like, around this area. Um, you know, it was also sort of right around the region, I believe, where the Hatfield-McCoy dispute played out. And, of course, across the... Um, border into west virginia that's like a big you know kind of primo like mothman area so ashland is another like really weird spot that's one of the areas actually peter lavender writes about in sinister forces right and then you know you go up from there into ohio and 23 um it goes right through most of the major uh, mound complexes in the southern part of the state um you know uh, serpent mound uh, mound city which i was just talking about a couple of the other ones uh and it's also in this region specifically known as a major hub of like human trafficking drug trafficking specifically when us 23 there uh to the point that you know i mean there's actually a uh, an interstate task force that was founded to try to uh, tackle all of the uh, just litany of crime that was unfolding along the highway. Of course, it goes up through into Columbia, Ohio, which, you know, that's where Lex Wesner was. That's where Jeffrey Epstein was. Um, or I think Lex Wesner still is in that area. Jeffrey Epstein was there for some time. So there's a lot of that kind of sketchy stuff as well. And then finally, you know, you go up into Michigan and uh, again, there's a huge litany of human and drug trafficking um, in Ann Arbor and Flint, which are two of the main cities that it goes through there. And there's also a lot of mound complexes and stuff like that along this whole area as well. Uh, like I said, I'm getting ready to do a show on kind of this whole significance of that area in Michigan soon. So, yeah, it's just... I mean, absolutely fascinating to me that, you know, you see this one particular highway. And then, of course, the number 23 as well, I mean, has a lot right. of esoteric significance. And I, this isn't the only case, too, where I've noticed, like, a Highway 23 having weird stuff. Like, Wisconsin has, like, a Highway 23, for instance. It's not connected to this at all. But this is the road that um, House on the Rock is off of, which um, was really popularized by Neil Gaiman and American Gods. Um, it's where the you know the whole carousel thing is and all that stuff is at. Mm. And then about seven miles up the road is Tallison, which was Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, studio slash uh, residence uh, for a lot of years. It's another weird structure. So you know you kind of see like these 23s and these highways across the country that have like a lot of these weird things that are set up on them. And, you know, my understanding is this, you know, is not the only instance of this. Of course, you know, one of the really famous examples would be uh, the old U.S. Route 66, uh, which passed through a lot of like the American Southwest. And it's interesting, too, because it was kind of um, in the case of U.S. 23, I mean, it was uh, despairingly dubbed in some in some areas, the Hillbilly Highway. 
because it was the route a lot of people from Appalachia took out of Appalachia into the Midwest and Ohio and Michigan and, you know, from there, like other part places like Illinois and so forth to work in the factories. And it was kind of like the same thing with the uh, U.S. Route 66, which was, uh, you know, what really took a lot of people back in the uh, early days of the highway systems, you know, from the uh, the Northeast and the Midwest out into the West itself proper. So, you know, I'm really fascinated by this notion, especially with the early highway systems, like how much that they were also sort of. Uh, constructed along these sort of telluric currents or ley lines, whatever you want to call them. And also just, you know, the places that have been built along them. Because, I mean, part of me feels like um, the Biltmore, for instance, was always intended to be a kind of, um, you know, almost tourist attraction out there, uh, gathering sort of energy from all the visitors and so forth. Oh, like yeah, interesting. Good. I mean, you know, you see that obviously with places like House on the Rock and what have you. But, um, you know, this is, you know, kind of a concept of Barney from Neil Gaiman. But I mean, there's. Yeah, certain- but I think he really hits on something in that book yeah yeah and i mean very much that i mean these sort of roadside attractions and stuff these really are like the true uh you know american shrines and temples i mean i'm kind of their way stations too right which gives them like a a a mercury kind of connection the hermetic kind of um vibe to them as well right like i mean i don't think that we're the only ones that take these roads yeah 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 absolutely well just the fact that they're able to draw all these people i mean especially like with house in the rock or the biltmore you know i mean these are attractions that were built in fairly like out of the way places like i was saying you know there's not really anything out near these areas so, i mean the fact that they're able to get so many people to travel out there in the first place is pretty remarkable in and of itself I mean, you know, you can point to other examples like the Russia Christian, you know, Museum and Park in San Jose, California. I mean, that's a lovely spot, too. But um, again, it's in San Jose. It's right out there in the midst of San Francisco and Palo Alto and all this other stuff. So, I mean, that's not really a difficult area to get to. But I mean, some of these other regions, though, these other places, it's just kind of fascinating that they build up these, um, you know, what have subsequently become almost these field of dream-esque you know attractions to people uh in the middle of nowhere and how they've managed to work and have that energy to pull people in into these desolate areas yeah i also it's interesting to look at I, for one thing i think it's funny that i didn't even think about this when i wore this hat but wearing a route 60 oh yeah hat. i hadn't even noticed that either <laughs> yeah. actually it's, yeah, it's yeah kind of funny um but the way that the like the old like route 66 23 um interesting enough there's one going through um the area i was talking about with um the rock eagle mound and those all those prisons in the insane asylum uh 441 that tom petty actually mentions in um american girl i think could hear the cars go by out on 441 like waves crashing on the beach Anyway, yeah, just a little yeah, bit yeah. of trivia because I I'm partial it's to the DC area. Highway, that's like another one. I think that's what, yeah, the, twenty one or something. But yeah, well, yeah. And so when I lived there, there was a lot of talk of like, yeah, the bikers would come up from Florida, like bringing all the cocaine and stuff through. Um, and so there was, you know, there's all that same kind of idea going on to what you're talking about. Um, but the way that these highways that those highways are laid out are, are kind of like the way that they flow with the land 
they kind of um and i'm going to be searching for the right words to say when i'm describing this but they kind of flow with the land as opposed to just like flowing over it and like bulldozing anything in their way right so like the more modern highways they just like clear cut through yeah yeah i know what you're saying like yeah like i mean you see that a lot in west virginia where they're like cut almost into like the side of mountains and stuff yeah like that. it's almost like to, to flow with the currents of energy kind of like what you're saying right like and yeah, the, the more it's... modern highways just seem there to like just put a fucking wall uh, maybe even um doing the opposite and like acting as a um like a breaker yeah no it's um another interesting one in that regard too that i've just now had to occur to me was one from uh, again the area where i grew up in florida this is uh parts of it are now part of like u.s route uh one uh, and it's also called the dixie highway but this wasn't the interstate dixie highway this was like the really early one but this this road is actually like one of the oldest um in the entire country it was uh, originally constructed by the spanish to link new smyrna uh with saint augustine and those are i think like the first and third oldest cities in florida and um oh there's i don't know it's probably about 100 miles between them maybe not quite that i mean it's not sh you know super far but it's not short either but um new smyrna had a really you know kind of a tragic history it was basically uh founded as kind of a plantation by this guy called turnbull we built his mansion uh on top of um one of the main tomahawk mounds actually like right in the middle of the downtown area of the city yeah bad and, idea man <laughs> yeah, yeah. well most of the pretty much all of the residents were indentured servants effectively who have been brought in from like greece and places like that and um it went on for about 10 years and gosh i think turnboard brought like 2000 of them or something like that over initially and within 10 years only about 500 people were left i mean they had literally been worked to death <laughs> on this site and um after uh the british had taken possession of florida after you know one of the litany european wars where these you know kind of territories were swapped out like baseball cards right <laughs> um you know basically they had all deserted uh the plantation and walked up this highway like in mass up to saint augustine uh to petition the british authorities for their rights essentially arguing that they had been kept against their will past their indentured uh contracts and all this other stuff and reported the abuses but um it had obviously so that kind of like peculiar history with it and then also i mean some of the um the things with the tim walkway as well so i mean there's a lot of reports of just paranormal activity and stuff like that all along this highway uh especially you know when you kind of get into the you know more royal areas i mean the parts of it connecting you know new smyrna into the daytona area and then when you get out of daytona like around ormond and stuff especially going up into saint augustine that's where most of it is i mean almost totally unchanged from colonial times and i mean there's just you know lots of interesting energies up there and i mean it's attracted some negative stuff as well um you know this is also where there's a lot of um well i, I haven't been there in a couple of years now so i don't know if it's still the case but this is where like you know traditionally a lot of the kind of more hardcore like biker bars and what have you 
were because i mean it was outside of daytona proper and um this was also kind of the area where arlene warhols used to sort of roam around to during her um heyday so there was a lot of uh stuff with the outlaws and some other weird stuff going on out in the area too back then so yeah it's just again you know it's another example just some of the fascinating history of some of these old highways and uh, it definitely makes you wonder about how they were constructed and specifically is it a coincidence that they keep drawing all these kinds of energies to them which i really don't think so yeah i don't think so i mean i'm actually pretty like on the <laughs> on the spectrum of you know my opinion about coincidences i kind of don't even really think that they're a thing. <laughs> like, I think that there are co like things that happen at the same time, but I think that essentially makes them connected somehow, right? Because they occur at the same time. Yeah. Which, I mean, it's interesting too, because Atlanta has such a rich esoteric history too. Um, what was it? The one occultist there, Percy Randolph or something like that. He had one of like the earliest systems of sex magic, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, interesting. I don't know anything about him. I might have to check that out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, Atlanta had that kind of like interesting tradition as well. I mean, it definitely has a vibe still, you know. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll have to check that out. There's yeah, and like Oakland Cemetery. <laughs> has that and just that just real gothic victorian garden feel to it like i don't know atlanta has definitely like just some some energy all its own yeah yeah well i mean certainly it's had a lot of dark stuff there too with definitely killings and i mean yeah. her to this day still a pretty big hub for trafficking and what have you i'm sure because it's just a big hub in the area in general right so like that stuff's gonna like you said, flow on these highways. Nightbirds, I hope you've been enjoying the conversation so far, and there's more to come. But first, I have to ask that you support the show. As I'm sure you've noticed, there are no commercials on this show. There are no paywalls. You get everything up front. For there to be free dialogue here, I think it must remain uncaged by the interests of advertisers. But Nightbird Radio does cost time and money to make, and your support means I can spend less time delivering pizza and more time doing this. That's a win-win. So that's why Nightbird Radio is a value-for-value value podcast. I hope you've found value in this show, but I can't and won't dictate just how much. Only you can decide that. But what I can do is invite you to take that value Turn it into a number and head to www.nightbirdpodcast.com and hit the donate button located on the front page to offer your support. We're also listed on podcastindex.org, which means you are able to send Bitcoin via the Lightning Network using your favorite podcasting 2.0 apps, which can be found at newpodcastapps.com. And finally, I also accept dry goods. Email me at tim at nightbirdpodcast.com for more information. Sponsors will get a special mention on the show. Thank you for your generous support. Now let's get back to the conversation. Maybe this is a little bit of a change of subject, but I think it's definitely tangential. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about MK Ultra. 
I know that's a big can of worms, <laughs> you know? Um, but I wanted to talk about in particular, um, what kind of what you think the purpose of that was. I said, I have this and I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by giving my little pet theory, right? Um, or at least about what's going on with it now. Maybe this may not answer, uh, you know, the fundamental question of it, but I don't think it ever ended. I just think that they took it, um, to scale and that like we are living it now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they burned all the stuff and was like, yeah, we didn't find anything. Um, you know, and yet here we have like widespread use of pharmaceuticals. It's like everyone's being experimented on 100% of the time. Um, I know you've mentioned this on some other podcasts I've heard you on, but like the talented and gifted programs, I think totally are, are from that. Um, so yeah, could you go into that a little bit on what your kind of thoughts or what your what do you think about <laughs> it's a very loaded question what do you think about all that <laughs> well i mean <clears throat> in the case of something like the gifted program i mean that really had nothing to do with mk ultra i mean that was derived more from a military thing called um, army alpha program which was what was used as sort of the model for the gifted program and this goes all the way back to the first world war for that matter oh interesting um and i should probably point out i mean that's like one of the major misconceptions like mk ultra was really only one of like several projects that were kind of ongoing with a lot of this stuff and i mean a lot of it was actually controlled by the military more so than the cia which a lot of people don't realize okay so mk ultra just kind of gets used as a blanket term yeah well i mean that's I also what i've think done in it, this case well i think it also though tries to deflect a lot of blame from the military itself and also to cover up the scope of like all of the stuff that the military was doing interesting because okay when you get into this it's obviously it's a really complicated subject um, but the origins of a lot of this stuff sort of went back actually to the period between the first and the second world war um and this is when a lot of the research that initially was begun during the first world war was kind of taken up and sponsored by you know the rockefeller foundation and some of these other groups and it really built up uh, what we would think of today is like the life sciences on the one hand which includes like neuroscience and uh, also would have involved like the study or at the time the search for what we would think of now as genetics we, of course we didn't really discover that i think until the late 40s early 50s uh, and then on the other hand, like the social sciences and things of that nature. And then going into the Second World War, a lot of this research was taken up further by um, the military and especially the U.S. Navy and to a much lesser extent, the OSS. But a lot of it was, um, oh, you know, directed under the National uh, Defense committee council or something like that it was the one that vannevar bush oversaw and um you know you had division 19 and a lot of other crazy stuff that was going on there um the actual origins for example 
of like the psychotronic program that we've been doing, you know, derived from this, which nobody ever talks about. It came out of the RAD lab, actually, uh, specifically the Radio Research Laboratory, which Frederick Terman oversaw. He's an interesting guy. His dad, Louis Terman, was the one who created the gifted program. And Frederick Terman is essentially the one that built up Silicon Valley and Stanford and SRI as the powerhouses that they are today. But going back to when he was at the radio research lab during World War II working for the Navy, I mean, this is when we started looking at high frequency radio waves and the effects that they could have on things like the ionosphere, on the effects that they would have on human beings. I mean, I was recently at Stanford and I, you know, got photocopies of a lot of these documents. I mean, going back to the early to mid 40s they're talking about shooting you know ultra high radio waves into the ionosphere just to see what it would do they're talking about you know using electro beam uh, rays uh, to interfere with the human mind essentially in some of these documents um you know and then on top of that you have the fact that Terman was the guy in the post-war years who built Stanford up he established things like the Stanford microwave lab which again is another major component of uh, psychotronic or non-lethal weapons and also the fact that almost all of this was sponsored by the U.S. Navy I mean a lot of people don't realize this but I mean up through the 50s and 60s I think something like 60 to 70 percent of Stanford's funding was coming from the freaking Navy and Frederick Terman was the point man for all of this. He was the provost for uh, Stanford during a lot of this time. So, you know, this is like a huge component of this kind of research that was almost entirely under the direction of uh, the Navy, you know, specifically that was going on at Stanford. And this sort of bled into a lot of other things that were being carried out there. I mean, you know, another interesting series of programs that were kind of connected to this and the um, ARPANET research that DARPA was doing, uh, or back then it was called ARPA, obviously, you know, was um, a lot of the stuff that was related to counterinsurgency, things like Project Camelot and Project Cambridge. Uh, these were probably programs that Edward Lansdale had initiated when he was overseeing what was effectively the Joint Special Operations Command, sort of proto version of it in the Kennedy White House. I had this guy, William Goodell, who was reporting to him, uh, basically overseeing the counterinsurgency program in ARPA. They started setting up, uh, well, on the one hand, I mean, kind of the genesis of the Phoenix program originated from this network. But on top of that, you know, they set up these um, effectively computer laboratories um, in Vietnam to compile data or to feed uh, data that they were compiling into to come up with computer models and how the strategic Hamlet programs that they had set up and things like that were doing eventually to try to get models for how the Viet Cong would react. And gradually, you know, they started building up a lot of these computer models for other militaries. And then, you know, again, eventually our own citizenry. So this is sort of the beginning of the technology that uh, later would come to fruition with things like Cambridge Analytica and so forth. I mean, this was also being built up um, by ARPA in the 1960s and has subsequently become a significant part of behavior modification and control when you look at how much um, computers and internet are now used for that type of thing. So this is like what I like to think of as the hard side of this kind of work. It was really centered in a lot of... Um, 
uh, you know, very hard sciences and that kind of thing. When you get into stuff like um, MK Ultra, which was the CIA program and Project Artichoke, which was a joint CIA military program and was never rolled into MK Ultra as is commonly claimed and continued concurrently with MK Ultra all the way up until the early 70s when both of them were broken up and folded into other programs separately. Um, but anyway, the purpose of these programs, I think, was frankly to research on a lot of these more esoteric kind of tropes, basically, you know, for lack of a better term, to see if a lot of occultism and magic had a basis in reality and could it be used for military or national security purposes or, you know, to explore it for other purposes as yet uh, acknowledged to the general public. Because again, this is, you know, I mean, I know that sounds kind of insane, but I mean, ultimately, you know, when you look at the the num staggering number of times that the military and the cia dosed people with lsd or bz and what have you like you don't have to do this thousands of thousands of times on the scale that they were doing right you know, to find out that it was unreliable uh, you know for mind control purposes or whatever i mean really if you want to control a society i mean opiates are much better for that which is yeah 100 percent <laughs> you know, yeah. since like the 17th or 18th century. And I mean, that's, you know, again, why well, you see opiates now everywhere, but that's another topic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, or it's like the same thing also with remote viewing, which grew out of a lot of this kind of research. I mean, once again, they figured out pretty early in the game that this kind of stuff wasn't, you know, super practical for spying purposes. I mean, there was something to it, most likely, but whether or not it could be reliably used consistently for intelligence gathering or other purposes, you know, it was never uh, something that anybody was sold on. So why then do you continue to research it by the military and the intelligence services i mean for decades if you <laughs> realize from the early 70s that it wouldn't be practical for this kind of stuff right but that almost gives it an even more sinister yeah absolutely absolutely cast. i mean it does raise even more curious questions about like why the military and the intelligence community were so interested in continuing to push like a lot of these uh programs with just this you know, really kind of far out stuff with hallucinogens and ESP. And I mean, you know, also, I mean, there was even some research done into things like UFOs and the, you know, the case of some of these programs and really odd ones too, like the Kentucky Hobgoblin incident and things like that. Mm, yeah, I love that. I love that case. <laughs> so, I mean, it definitely, Jungian psychology was another thing they looked at. It definitely, I think, raises to my mind that this was being done to really uh you know investigate i mean some of these bigger you know paranormal or you know occultic topics in a very scientific or at least as much as possible as for these kinds of subjects way uh but again for what purpose i mean i don't really know but i mean i definitely question the official narrative that it was for you know, uh, behavioral or mind control. I mean, certainly it would seem that in the grand scheme of things, a lot of the stuff that the harder approach was being done with, with, you know, computer modeling and psychotronics and what have you has proven to be far more effective than just, you know, trying to dose people with LSD or something like that. I mean, I think that there was another purpose entirely to that. Right. Interesting. 
Yeah. So uh, in the same way that, um, in the same way that some of those hard approaches that you're talking about are more effective at mind control, there are other ways that are much more effective in contacting beings. So that almost is like, that almost brings me to the same logical conclusion though. Like, okay, so you know what I mean? Like you don't, you also don't have to take acid like over and over again to like get in contact with that stuff. So why, like, well, that is why? kind of the interesting <laughs> thing about that, you know, because again, you know, there is one of the things that does seem to have come out of a lot of this kind of research is that, there is a reoccurring theme of people being contacted by non-human intelligences in these kind of altered states of consciousness. You know, obviously one of the real famous examples of um, psychedelic research that was semi-legitimate was done by Rick Strassman on DMT. And I think it was like the University of Arizona or Phoenix or something like that in the 90s. And a lot of people who were test subjects in that reported seeing, you know, um, things that resembled kind of gray aliens in these states that uh, contacted them. You know, I think these would be kind of akin to Terrence McKenna's mechanical elves or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, conversely, uh, you know, with the remote viewing program, a lot of the remote viewers when they were in their states, you know, doing their viewings uh, also reported seeing, uh, you know, extra what they would, you know, describe as extraterrestrial beings, gray aliens in these states. But again, you know, they weren't using drugs or psychedelics, but it was a singular situation. So, yeah, if you can contact an entity with a coat hanger, mm -hmm. you know, I just it, it makes me wonder. <laughs> you'd think with it, with all the money they're pouring into that, they could they would realize that. I don't know, like. Well, really I kind of think that, I mean, that's what they were sort of looking at with that, because again, I mean, you know, the whole process with remote viewing is, I mean, pretty simple. It's not like, I mean, it was right. like, it's, it's actually like way more simple than it's ever made out to be. It's very, it's quite like, just take your first impression, you know, like from what I've done of it. And cause I have, I've done a little bit of it. You know, I don't think that it was necessarily like, I mean, I think they were just basically trying to explore whether or not that they could, um, you know, get consistent results with a lot of these different methods. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That was like really the major issue, I think, with a lot of this stuff. I mean, also to try to understand, you know, I mean, like what they were being told, I mean, whether it's legitimate or not, whether they were being tricked. I mean, that kind of gets into the whole Collins elite notion and that kind of thing. So yeah it, to try yeah. to well like maybe to get a leg up on these beings yeah but i mean you know again as insane as this might sound i mean it just kind of seems like that this was the most practical explanation that i've come across for a lot of these programs no and i think you're right and it, it honestly doesn't sound crazy to me this is a podcast where we go there so <laughs> it's not I mean, because again, as I've kind of elaborated, you know, there were a lot of other programs that you never hear about that were being run for these purposes of behavior modification and mind control that were using way more scientific methods than just, you know, massively dosing people with LSD over and over again, you know. Right. Because it seems like that person is actually becomes really difficult to control. 
which I think is probably we saw some of the effects of that, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, yeah, there was, I think, definitely an ulterior purpose to Artichoke and MK Ultra that, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are still kind of, you know, just gradually starting to accept. And it really, you know, was not related to what we would conventionally think of as national security purposes. Right, right. Uh, yeah. At least not in any direct sort of way. I'm sure they've justified it a lot of ways, <laughs> you know, not that they have to. Um, well, that kind of gets me thinking too about, and you know, you obviously know more about this, this than I do. So maybe you can set me straight on it. But from my understanding, um, I want to talk a little bit about paperclip. And I think, you know, usually the common, thought about that is that like oh yeah we took their scientists but we also took their intelligence apparatus right yeah yeah parts of it with parts like of it right yeah we shared it with uh russia or what have you it, you but like you go ahead and talk about that because i want to hear what your take on that is well, like what specifically like the influence well, yeah the influence that they had it's hard for me not to see a through line between what people like Mangala were doing and what we ended up doing. And now maybe that's just because, you know, just corruption in the halls of power, right? And there is that like Faustian archetype that seems to come up again and again when these um, researchers or whatever you want to call them are given like infinite funding and no um, barriers to what they can try to do. So is it that, or is there a through line there? Well, I mean, I definitely think there is, because again, a lot of the, you know, the Nazi eugenicists and what have you were inspired, I think, by a lot of the stuff that we were already doing over here in the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, kind of getting into the the gifted program that Lewis Terman set up, I mean, it was very much, um, you know, when they kind of did the initial pilot study on it, it was one of the longest longevity studies ever conducted. And mm -hmm part of the psychiatric study in um, human history, actually. I mean, it followed uh, the participants in his initial um, group of gifted kids pretty much for their entire lives after Lewis Terman had died. It was carried on by his assistants and what have you and followed a lot of these kids up until they were in their 80s and 90s and what have you when they finally all died off. And I think it might even still be sort of ongoing to some extent following some of their, um, you know, their offspring. But I'm, you know, just bringing this up because, I mean, it was very much rooted partly in um, the study of the genetics, you know, I mean, how uh, the offspring of these kids would react and also was there a genetic basis for their high intelligence and also would that contribute to their success, i.e. to high IQs also contribute to, um, you know, the kind of financial success. But I mean, this was intended as a basically a straight up you know eugenics program it was basically crafting a structure of um education that would use high iq as an excuse to bring these you know kids out to give them superior educational standards than what people going through the regular classes would get and as i sort of said before i mean this was based on a model that you know terman and a lot of these other psychologists like or psychiatrists and psychologists like robert yerkes and what have you were developing 
during the First World War. I mean, they did these these series of tests. It was the largest psychiatric uh, series of tests that have ever been done using a personality profile, the Stanford Binet one. And um, it was you know done to categorize the troops into two different categories, the Army Alpha and the Army Betas. And uh, the Betas were basically the you know, the disposable ones, the ones who could be sent to the front lines, uh, you know, as cannon fodder to fight in the trenches and that kind of stuff. The alphas were the people who showed ability, leadership abilities, who would make fine officers, or could also do other functions such as serve as medics and what have you that required intelligence and specialized training and so forth. And this also sort of led to the rise of the notion of uh, what is usually referred to as psychometrics, i.e. placing people who supposedly have the uh, greatest skills at their disposable, disposal yeah, that they possess and, um, you know, professions and what have you, or in the case of the army and, you know, uh, areas of it where they will be of the greatest use. You know, you don't want somebody, for instance, with like a 150 IQ fighting on the trenches when you have, you know, a bunch of, let's say, African-Americans, because this would have been the period in the 20s and so forth, when this kind of thinking prevailed that you could just send out there. So, right. you know, anyway, so this was sort of the thinking that later went into what, you know, became our nation's education program. And, you know, basically the sort of differences between people who are put through various kinds of gifted programs and so forth versus people who get like common core whatever they're calling now the basic education um that most of the public is uh, subjected to so there was always this process of eugenics and also probably breeding programs as well i mean this certainly is seems to have been the case with terman's family and um some of the other stuff that was going on unofficially in the san francisco area uh, but that's another subject. But yeah, I mean, you know, some of uh, Terman's students ended up going over to Germany uh, in the interwar years. And I mean, who knows? Uh, you know, obviously, we know that the Nazis did draw inspiration from some of the stuff they were doing over here in the United States. But I mean, they might have even been uh, coached a little bit. Um <laughs> You know, on right. how the eugenics program and whatnot. I mean, but I do think that, especially with you know the war breaking out, it did give them the ability to do things uh, that would not uh, otherwise be possible under normal legal or ethical standards, which was obviously of interest uh, to the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean, after the war was over with. So, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, you know, we had interest in bringing in the Nazis. But, I mean, in general, you know, it kind of seems like with the United States, I mean, obviously, since we're supposed to be this bastion of uh, freedom and democracy and so forth, right. you know, we couldn't do this kind of research. It had to be Nazis that were brought over here. To yeah, the oh, Nazis man, that's blowing do. my mind, man. Thank you or, for that. Or even the, the Soviet Union could do directly for that matter as well. Right. And I mean, it's not necessarily just the Nazis. I mean, that we outsource this kind of stuff to. I mean, you know, you know, Israel. I mean, again, it's not really talked about a lot, but I sure. mean, South Africa, that's another big one where just, especially by the 1980s, man. I mean, I, I really think South Africa, frankly, was like where a lot of this stuff was kind of transferred to after, you know, like the church committee and what have you started to blow the whistle on it. Uh, here in the United States, because there was a lot of insane stuff that was going on in South Africa with like Project Coast and what have you. 
Um, do you, can you go into that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. We'll see South Africa really like reoriented its national security apparatus when was I think Pick Botitha or whatever his name was became the don't hold me to that. I'm probably goofing up on this. But Man, um you, you got it so much more down pat than me. I'm sounding like an idiot next to you, so I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> I'll take the heat. <laughs> but he became like the prime minister and he did away with boss, uh what was it, the Bureau of State Security or something like that that was basically their equivalent of the cia and nerfed like its um successor and you know down to like where it really didn't have a lot of functions and anyway uh to fill the void effectively they really built up their special operations forces by like the 1980s south africa was really dominated by its special forces and specifically the famous 32nd battalion and they had initiated this chemical and biological warfare program called project coast which more or less eventually became under the control of their special operations forces which is insane i mean yeah more or less this would be the equivalent of jsoc running like you know the dugway facility in utah and um oh gosh the one in maryland was it fort dietrich you know what i'm yeah. saying I mean, but that was more or less like what was happening. And, you know, in addition to like uh, researching, you know, actual like weaponry, they were also researching a lot of stuff that could be used for like crowd control and what have you. I mean, ketamine, for instance, and MDMA were actually researched massively as part of Project Coast. And it's an interesting thing. Like they first started to be used recreationally in a large scale in the UK in the late 1980s, where South Africa and specifically their special operations forces had a lot of intelligence assets based out of in which the UK, that is to say, had the largest anti-apartheid movement in the entire world at the time. So is it a coincidence that the kids who were part of the anti-apartheid movement were suddenly being hit with all this MDMA and ketamine and going into these raves and what have you by the end of the late 1980s? Oh, wow. So there was that going on. But I mean, there's just so many unanswered questions, in my opinion, about this when you look at the composition of the South African Special Forces. Okay, so the 32nd Battalion. The overwhelming majority of soldiers in the 32nd Battalion were Black Africans. And not just that, but they had originally been uh, guerrilla fighters for, and the 32nd Battalion was mainly involved in the Angolan conflict. That was like really the big one that South Africa was involved in. It essentially was a proxy war being fought between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, where we were using the South African forces. And the Soviet Union had, you know, basically funded Cuba to send in tons of troops into Angola to fight with the uh, various, you know, Angolan uh, resistance forces there. So they were squaring off against the South African forces and principally just their special operations forces. And I mean, the 32nd Battalion was so elite that there was this one battle i think it was like cochinos or something like that i always forget the name of it it was in like 87 or something it was more or less the decisive battle for this but cuba had amassed this joint you know force with the angolans that was like something like twenty thousand troops and the south africans sent the 32nd battalion like two thousand troops i mean they were you know literally outnumbered 20 to 1 at various points in the battle and they more or less mopped the floor with the 
Cuban forces. I mean, Cuba tried to claim the victory because essentially the 32nd Battalion wasn't able to totally destroy their army, more or less. Right. (laughs) It was just like insane. I mean, just wild. I never, I've never heard about this. So, and again, these guys were. I mean, almost they had originally been fighting with the Angolan forces that they were for the Angolan forces that they were squaring off against in this battle and a lot of the other battles they had thought for the South Africans. And this was a whole process that the South African special forces had adopted from Rhodesia, uh, which is now Zimbabwe. That's, you know, slightly to the north of South Africa. And that had also been like an apartheid country up until like 1980 or so. And when it folded a lot of the, the special operations forces from Odessa, like the Celosia Scouts and um, the Rhodesian Special Air Services, had gone to South Africa and signed up with their you know special operations forces. And it was the same thing, like with the Celosia Scouts. They were mostly you know black Africans who had been part of the resistance in Rhodesia, who were turned and then ended up fighting for the apartheid regime. So this is insane. Okay. Basically have managed to create some of the most elite fighting forces of the latter part of the Cold War that are comprised almost entirely of black Africans fighting for white minority rule, basically. And it's never been explained how this was accomplished. Well, I mean, the official narrative is that they basically bribed them. They offered their families lots of money and what have you if they fought for them, which, you know, that might have worked in some cases. But I mean, again, as the Soviet Union kind of learned, you know, in its dealings with American officials, because it was assumed by the Soviets, you know, you could easily turn American officials by offering them bribes. But that really was not that effective in a lot of cases unless somebody already had a lot of personal problems were in debt you know that kind of thing and i just think it's kind of the same thing with this it really just doesn't in my mind explain how you could have gotten these forces you know to you know because again like i'm saying before as i you know try to point out with some of these earlier anecdotes about the battles these guys were fighting you know they weren't in regular military forces you know these guys were being sent on very dangerous missions they were put into battles where they were outnumbered 20 to 1 and they were fighting their asses off were they just going to do that for money alone you know yeah right you know it does beg the question and then on top of that i mean there were you know another thing is that the special um the south african forces the special operations forces were also researching things like neurolinguistic programming and that kind of stuff as well so there's a lot of stuff and i mean also i should point out rhodesian special forces also had a chemical and biological warfare program that they controlled that was then brought to south africa so yeah, there were just a lot of interesting things going on in that whole region right around the time MK Ultra was winding down and really, you know, kind of played into this whole narrative for quote unquote super soldiers and is unfolding concurrently at the same time when, you know, we were essentially trying to, um, you know, 
reimagine, I guess you could say, our own special operations forces. Because, I mean, the you know, we had had the Green Berets that used them for the first time really in mass in Vietnam, and their performance was mixed, to put it mildly. So, you know, going into the late 70s, early 80s, this is like when SEAL Team 6 was created. It was when the Delta Force was created. And then by the end of the decade, they had formally set up what became the Joint Special Operations Command. So it's also kind of unfolding around the time South Africa is doing all this crazy stuff, building up these elite special forces and um Oh, gosh, then you have like the mysterious figure of Stephen Hillage, um, who later turned up in the, you know, as a suspect in the anthrax letters in 2001. But this guy was um, a former Green Beret that went to Rhodesia in the late 70s, was involved, I think, with the uh, Salosis Scouts or something like that, why he was um, in Rhodesia. And then later, you know, ended up in South Africa working for some medical unit or something like that. And then only returned to the United States in 94 when apartheid ended. But, you know, Soldier Fortune magazine was being used to heavily recruit troops for the Rhodesian and, you know, later South African forces. A lot of Americans, you know, fought in it. So, you know, to my mind, again, there's definitely a possibility that we were using South Africa as a testing ground to kind of build up these elite forces that, you know, become such a major part of our arsenal now. I mean, they're probably the only thing that, uh, you know, more recently has prevented Ukraine from falling to the Russians, frankly. And so that's where you see the real deal mind control being used, you think? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. definitely think, you know, when you look at some of this stuff, and then, of course, you know, since the 90s, I mean, a lot of this stuff was outsourced in these private military companies. Um, I mean, in the case of, exe- you know, obviously, executive outcomes, for example, uh, this is the famous uh, private South African private military company that uh, was sort of used as a model for the, um, you know, the outfit Leonardo DiCaprio's characters involved with in the movie Blood Diamond. Um, but executive outcomes actually inherited a lot of the, uh, the troops, you know, from the 32nd battalion after apartheid ended. And interestingly enough, they were set up originally to, um, you know, do neurolinguistic programming courses for, um, the South African defense forces. And then later they became like a full blown mercenary company. But again, you know, they had a lot of other businesses that they owned as well. Uh, that did a variety of different um, projects for them. So, I mean, who knows? But, I mean, I do sort of think about that with, you know, just the structure of some of these private military companies. I mean, a company like DynCorp is involved with a ton of other things besides just, you know, combat or security roles that we usually associate with them. I mean, they've done everything from, like, provide vaccines to, you know, cut grass in uh, the D.C. area and some, you know, public uh, buildings there and what have you. So I definitely kind of feel like, um, you know, when you look at some of the stuff that's going on in Iraq and what have you, I mean, these private military companies that are owned in a lot of cases by these conglomerates that do a lot of other research, you know, could easily be used as a means on the one hand to sort of like house and, you know, kind of conduct things with these super soldiers, quote unquote, but I mean, also to carry out like a lot of experimentation in the field and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. So my, I'll, I'll alter my premise and ask the question again. 
Do you think that these techniques have been turned on the public at large? Well, yeah. 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 So it's not like at first I said it's MK Ultra, but regardless of of where it's well, I mean, just look at stuff like you know, like the psychotronic stuff. I mean, this is thing, you know, something where I mean, again, it's even kind of openly acknowledged. You know, John Alexander. I mean, Green Beret was like a big guy who was pushing a lot of this, and I mean, again, he was kind of brought back into the fold after nine eleven. Um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about that, but I mean, certainly, you know, with a lot of the accounts that are coming out. First, I think from Syria, but I mean, now more recently, you know the ukraine and whatnot and then of course other things like havana syndrome and what have you i mean it does seem you know pretty evident that i mean we've started to see more operational use of a lot of these psychotronic weapons and i mean again i think a lot of this stuff is probably being carried out by special operations forces and what have you so yeah i mean you're i mean a lot of this stuff is definitely going on right now but i think a lot of it's just more operational now you know i mean they've already done all the experimental phases and whatnot and now i mean you've got these battlefields i mean this is especially what disturbs me with ukraine i mean god only knows all the stuff that's going to be deployed in this and the russians i mean had even kind of threatened this too when um i mean i know everybody was making a big deal about that speech that putin or had given recently when uh he had you know made the comment about nuclear weapons and then i think his secretary of state had backed it up but the secretary of state had also made this offhand comment about nuclear weapons and weapons based upon new technologies or something like that so yeah i mean i i think you know we're going to see more and more of this kind of stuff being rolled out i mean in the coming months and years and it's really disturbing man i mean and then of course you know you're already seeing i mean the you know kind of uh psychographic warfare that's being carried out against people online i mean again when you just look at i mean how accurate some of these you know personality modelings have become and i mean the ability to uh, stimulate i mean people's behaviors through computer models and things like that i mean it makes you wonder you know just with i mean uh you know like mass shootings for instance i mean how like they seem to kind of come and go in these waves that can be suddenly like triggered i mean how much of this is because the computer modeling now this like a traffic warfare that we're subjecting the public to yeah and everyone's got it in the palm of their hand right it's just like this it's like a it's such a devil's bargain it, it's like here's this piece of technology in your hand that can access just more information than people have been able to access in the history that we know of, right? Yeah. And you get this, but it also comes with this this hook. Yeah, and I mean, it was always baked in, too, because, I mean, people were sort of, you know, told the two stories about the, you know, ARPA research, where it was, you know, this sort of, like, hippie-fied version of it, and then the other where it was meant as a communication system for you know, the continuity of government stuff and what have you. But I mean, there was a third component too, which was basically to create a system of data mining that could be used for these computer models. I mean, this is things like- Right, to feed it into those models. Go ahead, sorry. You know, you know, JC Lick later, and I mean, all the other sort of architects of the internet had realized early on and were big advocates of. So, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, you know, I mean, this was already being looked at through the prism of, you know, behavioral sciences and things like that, and how we could use the data being harvested and finally have the capacity to, you know, do these really active models or uh, accurate models, that is to say. So, 
From the very beginning, yeah, it was always this sort of Faustian bargain, essentially. Yeah, and I think that kind of just is an underlying theme of technology in general. Um, personally, I mean, not that it's like always bad, but it does kind of come with this. Um, it comes with a challenge, like, and I think that this is something that the ancients actually understood better than us, which is that technology must be wielded with responsibility and morality. And that's why you have things like, um, well, when you look at something like the ancient Egyptians, you know, where their spiritual systems were as advanced as their technology, mm. like they understood that, that that these things had to kind of go hand in hand. And we just don't really have that. I don't think <laughs> we go wild with it. We can't help ourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also sort of begs the question, too, when you look at a lot of the traditions of advanced technologies coming from, I mean, non-human intelligences and so forth. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm big into that. And that's kind of the, you know, there's the. um, And I know Christopher Knowles talks about this, but you you hear it from. From multiple people, and and it's, I think, in Twin Peaks, uh, but also in The Invisibles. Mm-hmm. The idea of Roswell being um, like a ritual work. Yeah, mind. but like a ritual work that contacted something from outside that brought something in, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think in Twin Peaks, you're thinking. Oh, and it's, it's the bomb in Twin Peaks, bomb, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I missed. Yeah, you're right. But um, those are pretty close together, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, there has definitely been speculation that they were interconnected because, I mean, they're kind of unfolding in like the same sort of geographic area and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, it does like make you wonder. But I mean, yeah, I mean, again, it kind of goes back into like the twofold nature of a lot of this because a lot of people sort of focus on things like, um, you know, the Babylon working is like what it ushered in the modern UFO era. But I mean, I do think it's probably much more likely that it was stuff like the Trinity site and some of the stuff that the military was doing. Uh, you know, I know Chris has done a lot of great work on this with some of the other projects. Like what was it like Operation Crossroads and what have you that the military was carrying? Yeah, out which is like really interesting name for. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I mean, I definitely think that there were a couple of like these major like ritual workings like that that were being performed like, you know, towards the end of the Second World War into the immediate aftermath. And that was like, you know, a good, you know, candidate for what it produced this sort of modern UFO era that started at that point in time. Kind of plays into the whole notion that Twin Peaks had teased at that the, you know, kind of veils between the worlds had become thinner at that point of time or something to that nature. Well, and David Lynch is just plugged into something else. He just, he is. I and mean, I just, you can't tell me any other way. I just, his stuff is so um, archetypal, archetypally potent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it just seems truer than true in a lot of ways. And they well, can, I like, think- go ahead. Well, I mean, I think more than anything, it was probably the best depiction ever that's, you know, been done of like supernatural phenomena and stuff yeah. like that. Because, I mean, it really captures just like how truly weird a lot of this stuff is, you know, I mean, that's like, 
kind of the failings with a lot of science fiction or fantasy or horror movies as I, they don't appreciate just, you know, how strange, I mean, a lot of these. Yeah. How absolutely bizarre and absurd it can be just because I get a communication from something else. Doesn't mean that that's like a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of, you know, again, begs the question with a lot of the, you know, advances in technology and what have you, because I mean, it's, you know, it's really interesting when you sort of go back to like ancient Egypt and then continuing on through a lot of like the high civilizations in that area, um, you know, with Babylon, um, well, probably also with Samaria too. We don't know quite as much about the um, practices in that regard, but uh, certainly continuing on with Greece and Neoplatonism and what have you. I mean, such a a big spiritual practice among a lot of these different areas was the process of theurgy or God work, uh, which is basically, you know, the ascension or dissension uh, of your consciousness or a non-human consciousness consciousness through the uh, planetary spheres and so forth. And originally, you know, when this uh, practice, you know, was kind of started in Egypt, well, I mean, it might have also been practiced in Samaria and developed independently in uh, Babylon as well. We don't really know, but I mean, it seems like... Yeah, the Chaldean... or. Chaldean or Chaldean rites? Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah, they also did this kind of stuff too. And I mean, there were Native American tribes again, like the Hobo and the Adena, who seem to have done this practice as well. Uh, but again, you know, uh, essentially, you know, it was developed initially for Pharaoh, uh, and it was part of the, you know, uh, the process of the Book of the Dead. You know, it's basically uh, initially it was sort of developed um, as a way for the consciousness to ascend through the heavenly spheres, which was. Okay, but this sort of goes into, you know, again, a lot of the views and um, the ancient world about the afterlife. A lot of people thought that the human soul originated from the Milky Way. Uh, this is, you know, uh, a tradition that appears in a lot of different cultures across the world. And upon death, the soul would return to the Milky Way or some other, you know, equivalent to that. So, you know, the Book of the Dead was basically a kind of manual for how, like, this process would carry out, and it would be a way for Pharaoh to practice this, you know, before he uh, shed his mortal coil. And uh, then later, it was also sort of expanded on as a means of bringing down these different planetary forces. I mean, it's kind of thought that, um, you know, when you see these accounts of like statues talking and that type of thing from ancient Egypt and Babylon and what have you, this is like what was actually happening. You know, they were kind of doing this process, what we would think of now as drawing down the moon, so to speak, and pulling these planetary intelligences and stellar intelligences down into these vessels where they could communicate communicate directly with the priesthood and so forth. And then gradually this was developed into the more, you know, individual practice of theurgy, uh, which became such a major component into Neoplatonism and whatnot. So, you know, this process was ongoing throughout antiquity and, uh, you know, by the time of, um, you know, the Gnostic sects in Alexandria and so forth, I mean, it was actually fairly widespread. And, you know, as I had indicated before, it had uh, developed into where, you know, originally this was done in these very elaborate ceremonies by the priesthood. I mean, now individual people had figured out how they could do them with like relatively you know, little uh, investment of instruments or implementations. I mean, obviously, mirrors have always been a major, you know, method for doing this with scrying and so forth. And again, it's not the, you know, most difficult thing to procure. So, 
kind of goes back to what we we're talking about before sometimes the simplest things are the most effective things and mirrors certainly have proven to be very effective this type of stuff especially black ones well oh yeah definitely the obsidian mirror mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that brings a lot into into this side of the world too right with yeah 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 and that was them. go ahead and, well, I mean, also, too, we found, you know, traces of obsidian and some of the Hopo and Adena mounds. And they also had that, what was it, Misa, I think, M-I-S-A, which um, has been found in a lot of mounds. And that was almost surely used for the purposes of scrying. So, uh, you know, this is like a big process that seems to have been developed by a lot of different cultures across the world, you know, for these kind of planetary and interstellar journeys and so forth of the consciousness or, you know, drawing down intelligences to, uh, you know, initially in the case of antiquity, I mean, it was, um, you know, like I said, these inanimate objects, these statues and things of that nature. And then it became, you know, people themselves that were drawing these things down into them for a kind of, uh, frankly, temporary possession more or less yeah totally <laughs> so you know this process you know like i was kind of getting at i mean it was very commonly practiced uh throughout antiquity uh you know in the whole area around the mediterranean and beyond and then you know kind of gradually uh, went underground uh, during the advent of the christian era but i mean it really started to pick up again in mass um especially in western europe uh during the renaissance i mean especially after you know you had the fall of byzantium and a lot of the neoplatonic literature you know returned initially to italy and so forth so and that kind of coincides with like the rapid advancements in scientific research in the west so i mean it does kind of make you wonder you know when you sort of look at the the presence you know because again i mean you know like i was kind of alluding to i mean a lot of these uh major indigenous civilizations here in north america i mean you know again the hopewell civilization i mean was a massive trading uh network i mean that spanned all the way down from florida to the great lakes i mean it had a contact with probably the aztecs and you know i mean yeah we tend to there's think a lot of-, of similar motifs in their art too i know it's i don't know if it's like acceptable in terms of like the current academia but it's so similar man but we, we tend to think of like this era as being really primitive and it, it couldn't be further from it i mean they had a right. lot of massive cities and what have you and high civilization basically that was you know in a lot of cases built around these uh mounds that were you know stellarly or planetarily oriented and so forth and when a lot of that broke down i mean it was also uh, when there was a lot of um you know civilizational regression in some of the tribes in north america specifically whereas you still saw a lot of these high civilizations continuing like in um you know further south essentially uh but i mean again it does kind of like make you wonder you know um just how much of, I mean, the advancements of some of these civilizations were due to, I mean, some of these techniques and processes that have to do with these non-human intelligences. And if, you know, people in high places had some of that thinking, uh, again, this might explain why, you know, maybe we're putting this kind of money into things like Artichoke and MK Ultra. Yeah, definitely. I, It's interesting, too, because listening to you talk, I just got the thought of, well, you know, it used to be something that was reserved for the pharaohs, and you know, it was the upper echelons. And then eventually, we get to this point where it's like becomes available to the common folk. And I wonder if that's not um, 
you're looking at that ritual actually working over a long period of time and it's being diffused down into the masses yeah 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 and, and I mean, that's yeah. kind of what gets suppressed because then you have the the you know the suppression of the gnostics and then which brings us back to 1945 mm. because the nag hammadi was unearthed i think you mean 47 i believe 47 okay yeah, yeah. yeah. which was I'm, also i'm sure I do. Yeah, that was well. It was forty-seven <laughs> was big with a lot of this stuff because that was the year Crowley died. It was the year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mondia was discovered. The year of the modern UFO era really started. I mean, there's a lot of like curious stuff that was like playing out with all of this at the same time, and that uh, that whole you know uh, that particular year. Um. But yeah, I mean, it does make for some really heady stuff, no doubt. Well, hell yeah, man. Um talk about what you've got going on anything to look for from you coming out and then like plug your stuff again oh okay 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 well um yeah well i mean the big thing i've been working on is this wisconsin project with a couple of my other uh buddies but it had uh, originally sort of started you know as a kind of exploration of that you know highway 23 i was telling you about in wisconsin with uh house on the rock and Tallison there and uh specifically you know i was really intrigued uh by the murders that had happened in Tallison in 1914 involving frank lloyd wright's mistress uh it's really a uh, bizarre you know event uh that i don't think has ever really been adequately explained but it's seven people died in Tallison uh, on august 15th 1914. it's uh to this day the second uh or actually it's tied for the worst mass murder in uh, Wisconsin history, along with the 2012 Sick Temples shootings. Uh, but anyway, uh, it it's very strange. So the story as it goes is that the murders were conducted by Julian Carlton, who was uh, the chef at Tallison. And uh, he was usually described as uh, somebody from Barbados, but he was actually supposedly an African-American from Alabama who had been masquerading as somebody from Barbados because in theory, this would lead to less racism towards him or something like that. Um, but anyway, he, you know, was described as a genial presence at Tallison for a good chunk of his service there. And said, uh, finally towards the last couple of months, he was supposedly found standing up at night with a butcher knife mumbling to himself. So, it was decided to let him go and uh he was giving his marching papers on august 15th uh which happened to be a time when frank lloyd wright was absent from Tallison, along with lloyd wright his oldest son and um yeah he just carlton let us as they decided to not go quietly into the night um so depending upon which account you go by he either um went into the residential area where uh mama uh cheney uh, frank lloyd wright's mistress was with her two children and murdered them with a hatchet or he went into the dining area locked it uh while the workmen were having lunch set it on fire and then stood outside of the burning building and waited for them to come out one by one and kill them with a hatchet so in either case it's like he was either killing a mother and her children with a hatchet but the workmen were oblivious to this violence or he was burning them alive and then killing them with a hatchet while a mother and her children were oblivious to this happening which again it it, it doesn't make a lot of sense in my opinion 
Uh, then from there, Carlton supposedly took like hydrochloric acid or something in an attempt to kill himself after he had put him, uh, he had crawled into a fireproof, um, uh, like refrigerator or something like that. Um, and that was how authorities found him. He didn't die and so on and so forth. So it's, again, there's a lot about this that's really sketchy. And then on top of that, as I had looked at it more, I was really struck by some of the similarities it had to the different forms of uh, sacrificing uh, ancient Celtic civilization. And of course, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright was really into this. His uh, mother's side of the family were from Wales. Uh, they had only immigrated in 1844. And um, there was still a, you know, a big preservation of Welsh culture in their family. And that was why he had named uh, the studio Towson in the first place it was after the Welsh Bard and uh, all of his you know siblings and what have you would name their residences after you know Welsh names and that kind of thing as well so the three deities of sort of the Celtic pantheon that were most important were um Isis and uh Tarianus and Tartarus and um Isis uh, specifically was really big into his victims either being hung from trees or hacked to death, and specifically with uh, axes. Uh, most of the images we found of this deity were on like ritual axes and things of that nature. Um, Tarnus was the one who liked his victims burned alive, preferably in like wicker uh, figures or baskets. And uh, Titanus uh, liked his victims drowned. Uh, so obviously, um, there was a lot of the hacking and uh, the burning. So, uh, Tarianus and Isis would have been very pleased. Uh, there were no drownings, but Frank Lloyd Wright actually had put a Japanese ceremonial pond into the courtyard of Taliesin. And if you've ever, you know, seen the Ringu films and what have you, Japan has a big tradition of um, spirits being trapped in water and wells and things like that. So, uh, it is interesting that a lot of these killings would have unfolded against the backdrop of this pond. So I was just really struck by that and the fact that the bodies were like later taken, you know, to like his sister's house that had, um, you know, the Welsh name as well. And uh, Mama Cheney was put into the right family prod, which has a, like a lot of Welsh and Celtic trappings to it. And then kind of making things even stranger, um, Frank Lloyd Wright's son, Lloyd Wright, uh, would go on to uh, design a really famous house in Los Angeles, uh, the Soden slash Franklin house, which looks like a Mayan temple on the outside. And uh, there's been some really compelling evidence put forth that one of the residents, George Hadell, was actually the killer of the Black Delilah in 1947 again. He knew Lloyd Wright socially, and uh, George Adele was also pretty big into Celtic mythology as well. Um, you know, he actually used the Celtic solar cross as his business symbol for a lot of years. He might have studied Ogden's script and things like that. So another interesting thing, there might have potentially been another highly ritualistic murder carried out in a um, house designed by a member of the Wright family. And it's, again, these sort of trappings of these, you know, bizarre Celtic stuff. And anyway, you know, this was something I became really fascinated by, and I started to wonder were there links and were there other examples of this in Wisconsin? And it turned out that, you know, when you started looking into Hodel, he had also been put forth as a suspect for the Zodiac killings. And another interesting candidate for that was a guy called Paul Dorr, 
uh, who was uh, involved with the Church of All World and Society for Creative Anachronisms and a lot of the neo-pagan scene in Northern California. But he also uh, maintained a correspondence with Circle Sanctuary in their newsletter, which was based uh, not only out of Wisconsin, but uh, was within about 10 miles of Taliesin out there in that whole same area of Wisconsin. And then when you sort of uh, step back and look at Wisconsin as a state as a whole, there's a lot of other interesting things. And Jeffrey Dahmer and some of his killings also have some overlap with Celtic rituals, especially the collection of like uh, heads and skulls from his victims. And then also uh, the smiley face killings. Um, you know, the most credible accounts by that have been put forth by Kevin Gannon and some of the other ex-cop and law enforcement people he works with. And um uh, they had postulated that Lacrosse, La Wisconsin, was uh, potentially one of the major hubs for the Smiley Face killings. A lot of uh, victims have turned up within a 200-mile radius of Lacrosse, um, which is right at the border with Minnesota, and it's not far from Iowa as well. So, I mean, a lot of victims in those states fall into the perimeter of Lacrosse. And again, drownings, um, obviously, as I was kind of saying before, that was a big part of Celtic ritual sacrifice. So this is kind of something that we're hoping to explore on this project. And um, everything goes according to plan. It will hopefully turn into a kind of docu-series uh, that we're going to do a lot of other stuff with things online and what have you to kind of, uh, you know, flesh it out and give even more information to people. But it's, you know, really exciting. Uh, I think it's going to be kind of almost like a full-blown transmedia project when it's finished. And um Hopefully it's going to give some really, you know, novel accounts and some of these historic figures and high weirdness. And again, you know, it's also not to try to like perpetuate the sort of narrative of like an underground cult or something that's not, you know, necessarily what we're looking to find or prove, but also to sort of just raise the possibility to areas and affect people do we subconsciously play out ritual dramas because of other influences on us which i mean in some cases seems to have been what was happening with some of the individuals in wisconsin and some of the areas linked to them so you know i'm really excited about it i mean it's going to cover both a lot of parapolitical and a lot of high strangeness research which are my two big passions and then um i've also got my ongoing q book uh which I'm hoping to hunker down and get a lot of work done on over the winter. It's definitely going to be two books now. Uh, the first book is actually going to cover a lot of the territory in Northern California, along with like the history of discordianism and a lot of that kind of stuff, uh, along with the history of psychotronics and, um, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of the stuff we talked about this with, uh, you know, psychographic warfare and uh, computer simulations. I mean, how all this stuff came about too. And then the second book is going to kind of get into, I mean, how it sort of led to the rise of QAnon and the, uh, you know, the efforts of a lot of private military and intelligence companies like Cambridge Analytica to use these kinds of technologies. So the whole thing is uh, definitely really ambitious. Uh, the, well, pretty much all the projects are at this point. I mean, the Q book is already up to like 200,000 words, which is why I've, or 100,000, which is why I've had to break it up because it's just too much for like one book so yeah um a lot of big projects i'm working on and um you know god willing i will hopefully have a lot of this stuff starting to come out in 2023 and uh it will you know, hopefully change some uh, discussions on a lot of topics and uh bring a lot of interesting uh information to uh the public at large
And um, in the meantime, if you're interested in hearing more of my stuff or reading it or what have you, uh, there's obviously the Visup blog, V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, one word, dot blogspot.com. I, I don't update that as much now as I would like to, but there's still a lot of great articles on there. And, you know, I did it pretty much regularly for 10 years. There's a ton of stuff on there, and it's got links to a lot of my other um, things, too. I do the farm podcast. There's a weekly free show which you can find on Apple and Spotify under the farm podcast mock two. That's M A C H I I. And then also there's the farms Patreon. You get uh, on the lowest tier, two additional uh, full length shows per month on that. And the all access patrons, you get the farms, uh, you get those shows plus the farms weekly zoom party uh periodic state of the union addresses a lot of information on my ongoing investigations movies that i throw together my travels just all kinds of goodies and what have you so definitely uh consider signing up for the farm's patreon um some of the farm podcast official patreon there and again you can find links to all this stuff on the visa blog so yeah you know if you're uh, not sick of me at this point uh there's plenty of resources that you can find me at (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know you've brought a lot of interesting information to light for me, and you've given me a lot more to sit with and think about, and uh, really look forward to what you've got coming out. And uh, just thanks again for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, sir. All right. Have a great one. You too, sir. Do you experience weird shit? Do your parents not like to tell their friends about what you do in the woods? Do you make more friends in a graveyard than you do at a party populated by living humans? Do you have interactions with beings that are not strictly considered human? Do other people look at you like you're crazy when you mention talking to trees in casual conversation? If you fist pumped or even just answered yes to any of these questions, you may be a nightbird. So let's sing together. If you'd like to come on the show and flap your gums with me, share your stories, or just talk about the malleable nature of reality for a while, then send me an email at tim at nightbirdpodcast.com. That's tim at nightbirdpodcast.com. I'd love to have you on the show. But until then, I gotta fly. But before I go, let me say this. Remember, you are never alone. I believe you.